This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. Hi, I'm Jeb Blunt, best-selling author of Fanatical Prospecting Objections, Sales EQ, and Inc. And I'm here to help you open more doors, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. Welcome to another episode of the Sales Gravy Podcast. I'm with Mastermind Group Incredible on Sales Gravy University. And on this episode, we are going to be diving into something we call Jeb Unplugged. The Mastermind Group members will be able to ask me any question and we'll just take those questions and we'll work through them. And these are real life questions. So these may be, there may be something in here that you're struggling with that we'll be talking about that may give you an idea that will help you get past that problem. Before, we get started, go check out Sales Gravity University. And in fact, go check out our mastermind groups. They've been a huge success this year. We just launched them. And you'll hear from this group as we go, just how impactful these uh, these mastermind groups can be. You can learn more about Sales Gravity Mastermind Groups at learn.salesgravity.com. That's learn.salesgravity.com. All right, mastermind group, incredible. Who's going first? Quick scenario. I made it to the final round. I have a huge presentation tomorrow. Uh, the business, the revenue is about half a million dollars a year for the next three to five years. We have the final interview spot. Tell me the couple of things you would do off the top of your head to stand out and just blow them away. Well, I would say number one, congratulations for having the final interview spot uh, because that's a big deal. Because People have a tendency to put more value on things that they remember. And if you're last, they're going to remember you just because you were last. And one of the strategies that I've always used from the time that I was 20 years old selling was when I'm in a big presentation, I always jockey and do all the work that I possibly can to move myself so that I'm the last person to speak. It's something called the availability bias. And uh, you can look that up on the internet. You can look it up, you'll find that. But basically, it's just the way the human brain works. So that would be number one. Number two, in, in this final presentation interview, the most important thing you can do to stand out, especially in today's volatile economy, is that you're delivering a business case that demonstrates ROI. So your ability to get out your, your calculator and say, these are the things that we uncovered when we were working with you during discovery. This is what we learned. These were the problems that you faced. And here's what the future state is going to look like once we implement our program. So, And when you say future state, there are going to be some value there that's going to be personal to the individual stakeholders. And you, make, you, want, to, you want to touch on that. So, for example, if Kevin's in the audience, you would say, Kevin, one of the things you said was this. And this is how we'll handle that. And this is what this will do for you. And there's going to be some emotional outcomes. So peace of mind, you know, making sure they're picking a vendor that, that they trust and they believe in. That's going to help you stand out. But more than anything, it's being able to make your case. So a, when I say business case, I mean, this is business. Like you're not just like going in and dropping marketing brochures on them. You're literally walking through in their language and their business exactly what they're going to get from, from your installation or your product or service. And, and be able to back that up with math. And to me, that's what makes you stand out. And, and Bob, the way that I typically do that, this is a sort of a value framework, is I would say one of the things that we discovered and discussed, and I'm assuming since this is like a million and a half dollars over three years, and you've probably done some meetings around some consensus on this, you've said one of the things you told us was this was a problem that you're having or one of the things that you said was this was a challenge, or remember when we were walking through and you were talking about and we learned this. So, so, so tell them what the problem is. Then say, here's what our recommendation is. So what we recommend is that you implement boom, 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 and, and do it in their language and get granular on that. We, we're gonna implement this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. So you're gonna make a recommendation. And then you say, the outcome that that recommendation will generate will be business case with math. Like here's, here's what you're actually going to happen from that. Um, you can talk about personal and Kevin, that means you're going to free up a lot more time in your day and emotional. And that's going to give you peace of mind that you're going to be able to go focus on your business and you're not going to have to worry about that. So you're going to talk about measurable business outcomes, personal outcomes, and then emotional outcomes. And, and you want to do it in that order. So it's a, articulate the challenge, 
make a recommendation, describe the outcome, the future state, right? So, and, and by the way, Bob, that's how human beings consume information. And if you, if you, if you take that, that framework and you plug it into Star Wars, right? It's Obi-Wan Kenobi, Luke, you know, this is a terrible planet. You shouldn't be here anymore. My recommendation is we leave Tatawan and we go out there and find the force, right? And when you do that, you're going to be a hero and you're going to save the planets and save the world. And that's what's going to look good for you. And we've been consuming information like that since the beginning of time. So if you do those things, you'll stand out. But congratulations, because the, the number one thing that you did to stand out was that you're last. Yes. Um... Uh, first off, uh, uh, Brad did a podcast with Tony Morris that was kick butt. Wasn't it good? Thank you. <laughs> I've only listened to it about five times. Uh, really, really good. So keep that good content coming. My question, Jeb, uh, what are your tips for scaling the business? Most of us think that staying in a, our comfort zone is good, but scaling the business to a larger accounts with a bigger or better ROI is better for our growth and our commission checks. Perfect. So when you say scaling the business, are you describing scaling a business, making a business better? Are you talking about scaling upward so that you're selling larger deals? Ladder. The ladder. Okay. So I, I, in fact, I was just talking about this yesterday on a podcast that'll come out down the road. Uh, or it may have even been out before this one comes out. I'm not quite sure when the, when the, when the schedule on that one is. But, uh, but you, when you think about scaling into larger businesses, the, the most important thing is that you actually start. So a lot of people, like they hit singles, hit singles, hit singles, hit singles, and they hit singles because they're really easy to hit singles. And, and you can get transactions and you can get wins and it makes you feel really good. And then when you start looking at the bigger opportunities, it can be overwhelming. You don't know where to start. Uh, and you tried it a few times and it didn't really work. So the only way to get practice in selling larger deals is to go out and try to sell larger deals. But the second piece of this is don't forget the singles. What, what, if I go back to like my early years in sales, when I really started scaling up into larger deals, the one thing that made me ultra successful, and this is walking on stage and taking account executive of the year trophies off the stage consistently year in and year out, was that a lot of the people that I worked with sold really big deals, but they didn't sell any singles. They didn't sell any doubles, they didn't sell any triples. All they did was sell big deals. And the problem with that is, if you load up all your deals like Bob over here, I'm Bob, I'm just teasing you, but if Bob's like got, you know, he's got, you know, one $1.5 million deal in his pipeline and he's like living on that, that's a lot of risk in that. So I want to de-risk my pipeline and de-risk my income by having a consistent, you know, pipeline of singles, triples, doubles, and home runs. But I need to hit home runs because home runs are exactly how you scale up and they're exactly how you grow and they're exactly how you, you, grow, you know, you get a bigger income. So you have to begin first and you have to remember that to de-risk your, your, your income, de-risk your pipeline, have a little bit of everything in there. Don't ever be counting on a single deal. So that's the beginning. The second thing is really understanding which big deals you can close because it's easy to get into deals and get deep into deals and invest a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of company revenue or company, excuse me, resources in the deal. And it's a deal that you could never, ever, ever close. So if you, if you think about a, a big deal, for example, there's two people that win a big deal, right? The one that walks away with a contract and the one that walked away first because they realized they could never close it. So you really need to have your qualification mechanism down. And that's both like real things like, is there a buying window? What's the competitor they're with? Is there, you know, is there a contract that's holding them back? So you don't want to be in there if they've got a contract. You know, what's their budgetary process? Who are the people who actually make these decisions in these organizations? So don't just say, are you the decision maker? Look at the patterns of these organizations, which department, which human being in this department, who makes the decision? And then sort of as a, as a byproduct of that, in today's world where we are dealing with some uncertainty, as, as people become risk averse, those decisions become or start moving further and further up in the organization. So understanding all of that, you have to have that. You also have to have fit. Does this company fit us? 
because if you bring on big companies and they destroy your company in the process because they don't fit you, that's not a very, I guess, a good, you know, good strategy either. So I want to understand that. And then there's the nuance of intuition, right? And I know this is kind of fuzzy, but when you're dealing with a big account, you have to have that, that thing inside your heart that says, I need to keep moving or I need to run as fast as I can. And sometimes if you're in the middle of the deal yourself, you have a really hard time seeing or being aware of the truth. So when I'm working on big deals, I'm always building a coalition of people around me inside my organization who can, can, I can you know, throw the deal against and get their, get their input, right? So, so let's start here. One is you gotta start, you gotta make sure that you de-risk your pipeline by not only focusing on big deals, then you need to have really good qualifying mechanisms, not just qualifying walking through the door, but qualifying as you go. Make sure that you, you have some people around you that can help you become aware if you need to walk away from the deal, because the last thing you want to do is get buried in something for a year, because big deals take a long time to close, that you never had a shot at closing to begin with. So all of those things. Then you need strategy, because big deals are not a... Like you show up and you transact. So the, the people that I know in my life who have been extraordinary selling really big accounts, they start at the end. So they always start where they want to be. So they start at, this is, this is how I'm going to close this deal. This is how much it's going to be. This is where we're going to close it. And timing matters, right? So if you've got a deal and the decision doesn't have to be made for a year, you don't want to do your proposal one month in, right? So you've got to have everything timed out right. So go back to what we were talking about with Bob. He's the last person in on the proposal. So, but if he was the first person in and his, and his proposal happened in month one and the last person came in in month 11, Bob loses because they don't even remember who he is. So having all that timing right and then work through the steps. So what are all the micro steps that are gonna take you to a close? And that's what's super important because in big deals, more than any other sell out there, the decision is almost always made someplace in the middle. And what I mean by that is that the stakeholders decide the, to pick you. So in some cases, like Bob, you talk about your deal, the, the, the stakeholders, if, if you feel like you're in the driver's seat on this because you get that intuition, they already made the decision to pick you. Your final interview is making sure they didn't make a, a bad decision. So they typically are making a decision in the middle and they're making a decision primarily by what you do in discovery. Like, so the questions that you're asking, how you're provoking awareness of issues or problems that they don't even know that they had, how you're getting them to start thinking about why they need to change. So as you start mapping out how you're gonna get the deal, you gotta start thinking about, okay, here's where we're gonna start. Here's all of the players that we need to know in this deal. And by the way, you need to know them all. And you need to understand their different roles in the decision-making process, whether they're amplifiers or whether they're, they're influencers or whether they're people who write checks or approve contracts or whether they're coaches. And, and so identifying all those folks and then start thinking through all your discovery steps. What is every single thing that I need to know in order to build an unassailable business case for why I'm the right company to do business with? Because when you start going through what we were just walking through with Bob, that, okay, here's the challenges you, you, you said you're facing. Here's what are we recommend. Here's how we want to fix this for you. And here's the plan result. You don't have any of that ammunition if you didn't do deep discovery. And the biggest single mistake that salespeople make in big deals is they do shallow discovery. They go in, they ask a few questions, and then they do a proposal. Doesn't work. You gotta, you've got to lay it out one step at a time. So you think I'm going to, I'm going to meet with them and I'm going to work on this particular problem. Then I'm going to meet with the Southern department and work on this problem. Then I'm going to do this and work on this problem. And you begin dictating sort of the timeline for this particular deal that fits into where you, when you need to close it based on their open buying window. And I'm, I'm dialing in about, you know, 20 years of strategy in a, in a, in a short answer. But all of that matters because you're basically playing chess, right? And you want to organize the chessboard in a way that gives you the highest probability of winning that particular deal. So those micro commitments and micro steps really, really matter. So you've got stages, discovery, but what are the micro steps inside of discovery that then lift your probability or win probability in that particular deal? And you need to have all of that laid out. 
and and begin walking through those steps. And then that awareness, if like if you're in the middle of discovery and you get a wake up call, this is not the right deal. We're not going to close this deal. There's something out there. There's an incumbent vendor and these three stakeholders love that incumbent vendor and they are not going to let them go then you know, you're in a world where people get consensus before they make decisions and they're risk averse, maybe you need to listen to your intuition and walk away. But all of that mapped out. And then finally, and, and Jim, I'm like, I'm really, you know, putting this into a, like a, in fact, I wrote a whole book about this called Sales EQ, but, um, but, but if you, if you then, then dial in murder boarding, and I, to me, murder boarding is the most powerful tool that you can use. And all murder boarding is, is, what killed the deal? So if you've ever watched one of those like BBC mysteries, you know, they put the, the suspects up and they put strings and, you know, all these other places. In sales, what you do is you, you take your big deal on a regular basis and you sit down with your team and you start poking holes in it. And you find every reason why you're going to lose the deal, every reason why they're going to say no, every reason why something bad might happen, and then start solving for those reasons. And if you can't solve for the reason, now you've got a, you know, a wake up call. There's something I need to change, do different, find somebody to help me. I got to do something here. But as you start doing that, what happens is, again, back to the chessboard, you start looking at that deal through the lens of probability, math. What's the math for me in this particular deal? And as that probability then moves up and moves up and moves up, once you get to Bob's place and you're doing the final presentation, what you can feel comfortable uh, with is that they've already made the decision to do business with you. All the proposal and presentation is, is they're validating the decision that they already made to do business with you. And big deals are almost always that way. I, there is, it, it, I mean, almost a zero probability that a group of stakeholders is walking into a final presentation and they haven't already made a decision about what they're gonna do. Make sense? And all of that comes into play. And so when you start thinking about what do I need to do to level up, start with doing something, right? Make sure that you de-risk your pipeline by not only doing big deals. So start with big deals, qualify really hard, and then, and then really focus on strategy, like game strategy for those deals and get other people around you that can help you, you know, with awareness and help you with that strategy. And once you do that, it really comes down to getting the right deals in the pipeline, getting enough of deals, those deals in the pipeline and having the discipline to work that strategy. Does that, does that answer your question? Uh, yes, I think I took enough notes to write a book. Okay, very good. Jim's gonna give you a run for your money on, on the authoring. And actually Jeb, um, I, I, I saw a question come up in the, in the chat that I think okay. kind of goes along with the same discussion we're having right now. Okay. Um, so uh, one of the participants had posted that um, just overcoming the procrastination of trying to approach some of the larger accounts. Like I know when I'm, um, I'm batting singles, I can get them, I can get them quickly. I know I wanna go to those bigger accounts, but one of the challenges that uh, was mentioned in the chat was that uh, recently lost a large client to a bigger competitor. I'm a smaller mm -hmm. business and they left me because they wanted, while they liked our service, they thought maybe a larger agency would be a better fit. So when, when some of us on the call might be faced with wanting to approach those larger home run deals that, that we might want to add to our pipeline, but we might be the smaller player in our space. Is there any best practice you might recommend yeah. there, Jeb? Absolutely. David, can you do me a favor? Uh, David's our producer. Can you put the uh, chat up for me so I can see it in the corner? Um, who asked that question in chat? Okay, uh, Renee, let me ask you a quick question. The so you you lost you lost to a larger competitor. Did yes. you already have this customer? Were they your customer? For forty years. Yes. For forty years. Okay. So so this is a little bit different than the conversation I'm having with Jim because we're talking about how to go out and acquire a customer, right? Mm -hmm. In your case, it was a larger business came in and ate your lunch. Yes. Okay. So, okay, um, don't, don't shoot the messenger because <laughs> you're not going to like me uh, for saying this. Um, the primary reason that that happens to a small company, primary reason, number one, not all the reasons, but number one, is that you ended up taking them for granted. Because 70% of the time, and these stats hold up pretty much everywhere, when a business that's an incumbent customer leaves you for another business, 
it was because they felt like they had been taken for granted. And there was enough of an, an, an opening that a competitor rep was able to get in. And then the competitor rep did exactly what I just advised Jim to do, right? Exactly what I just advised Bob to do. So they got in, they made an opening, they started doing deep discovery, they started asking questions. And if they ask the right question or create enough like stress with the with the buyer, the buyer starts digging through your world, right? They start peeling back the onion, they find mistakes you've made, they find something you did 20 years ago and they bring it to the surface. They find a billing mistake, uh, anything that happens, they find those things and suddenly you're on the defensive. Correct. Now, and this becomes a major problem for you when you're on the defensive because because as a smaller company, you don't have the resources to put into saving that deal because you've got a whole bunch of other alligators you got to deal with. So, and, and this is just the, like the, the lay of the land for a small company. So you're trying to defend yourself and on the defensive, what, what's your, what's your biggest thing? You go, well, we've been together for 40 years, but we can fix that. But we, no, but we didn't mean that, but you know, give us another chance. Like that's the game you get into. And the, the, the competitor sales rep has got the calculator out and they're doing the math and they worked it and worked it and worked it and worked it. And by the time they came to you, the stakeholder group had already made the decision to change. Correct. And then when they came to you, you validated the reason why they made that decision through the behavior, which is be on the defensive. Right. So, so if we, if we take both sides of this coin, Jim, that's how you win big deals, right? You got to get in there and you got, especially with incumbent vendors, you got to put a wedge between them and the other vendor. And there's a, um, there's a course on Salesgrave University called Competitive Displacement Selling. Uh, I did it with Anthony Anarino, and it's sort of a workshop. But if you go watch that, Renee, you'll see all the, all the trademark, you know, because I made a living doing exactly what just got done to you. And you'll see that, but you'll see the, the, the parts and pieces of how to displace, displace an incumbent vendor. So, Jim, for example, in big deals, when I'm doing early qualifying a big deal, one of the things that I'm looking for is is how entrenched is the incumbent vendor so if they're super entrenched and they're not making a lot of mistakes right so they're not doing a lot of bad things the, i'll ask questions i'll do discovery what i'm looking for is is there something i'm poking right everywhere i go what i've learned over time is that there almost always is like there's almost always a problem almost always a situation where they're taking it for, for granted almost always and what I have to do is not tell them, hey, your vendor's taking you for granted. What I have to do is ask questions, great discovery questions that brings it to the surface. So Bob, I don't know if you remember this, but, but it outbound, I, my, my, my opening um, session was, it was pretty long, so it's about 90 minutes. But, but I told a story in that session about a bakery that I went into and I was asking these questions. And as I asked the question, my my stakeholder got became acutely aware that the incumbent vendor was totally taking him for granted. So when I walked in, he said, we're really, really happy. Just give us some prices. When I walked out, he was angry. And I knew that as soon as he called the incumbent vendor, they would go on the defensive and I would win. And that was multi-million dollar deal. So, so same thing here. So my advice to you, if you're a small company and you manage accounts, like you have accounts, and you're and there are bigger competitors in your in your marketplace. The thing that makes small companies a great play for big companies is that they know that you care. Like they know that they're going to get personalized service. They know they're not going to be a number. In some cases, like in my business, they know they're going to be talking to an owner, like someone who runs the business. That's risky for them because maybe you don't have all the resources to take care of them. But that's what you got to sell. That like you got to sell. I'm going to take care of you. But on the flip side of that, it's that it's that personal attention. It's that you treat them like they're gold, like that matters. And they know that. And you got to tell them the personal story of what they mean to you. Like you got to let them know, like you're important to me. You have to never lose sight of that because as a small company, if you take a big company for granted, there is always somebody there. In fact, there are a line of salespeople out the door around the corner that are waiting for you to mess up and you can't mess up 
Because when you mess up, you lose. And when you lose, it takes a long time to get back in. Now, in your, in your favor is 40 years of experience. And the fact that there's a really good chance that the transition to the new company will not go well and they're gonna make a mistake. So what you can't do is tuck your tail and walk away. What you must do is stay in front of them, 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 be nice and wait and just be there in the weeds because when they make a mistake, then you pounce and you're able to get back in. And when you say stay in front of them, what what is a great strategy to do that? Pick up a phone and call. How you doing? You got relationships over there. Like yes. just call. Hey, Stephen, it's Renee. What's going on? How's it happening? Just checking. I hadn't talked to you in a long time. Don't talk about business. Don't ask anything. Just check. Send a handwritten note. Just thinking about you. Send a video. Just thinking about you. Just stay there. Like even if it's just once a month so that you're looking, you're waiting. And, you know, I, I lost a, um, a really big deal. This is another company, really, really big deal. It took three years. But one day the head buyer called me and said, what will it take to get you back in here? These people are killing us. So it happens, but, but you have to, I'd stayed in touch with, stayed in touch with them, stayed in touch with them. So they didn't lose sight of me. And the frequency, cause I said, you said maybe once a month, but does that seem too much versus once a quarter? Like what seems, and I don't I know would, what would be ideal, but. I would just say once a month, as long as you're okay. being nice. I mean, nobody, okay. I mean, everybody's cool. If you're just being nice, you know, Hey, I'm thinking about you. So. Mm -hmm. And, and you never know that maybe there's something else they have for you, but I, if it means that much to you, that's what you have to do. It but does. It's not, but it's, it's going to, it could be five years. Yeah. But if you, if you go back in and demonstrate that you really care, and if you made some mistakes and they ask you about them, you're contrite about it, you should be okay. But I, but it's going to be a, I mean, the, the now, now, you know, now you're, you're trying to displace an incumbent. So they're going to, they're going to hold on just as hard as they possibly can because they don't want to lose this account either. Sure. Thank you. Perfect. Um, hey. Jeb, we have a question from Sandra, I believe. Sandra, you said you wanted to ask your question. Mm -hmm. So I have a small boutique recruiting firm and I'm basically me, myself and I, and I have, um, I have some support team that does a lot of the administrative work. Um, I've been primarily working on the professional level with the, an occasional more senior level management level. And I, I want to still continue the professional side but I also want to scale in not necessarily more companies, but more higher level executive placement. And my questions are, you know, who is the best person that I should start to develop a relationship? Is it the board of directors? Um, so my thought is I need to create a, a relationship with the top executive to try to, you know, do the same things that we've been talking about. Um, and how would I compete with like a corn fairy, which has got tons of resources? We touched on that too, but I guess I'm looking because HR traditionally, at least in, in my area, I'm not in the staffing side, but I'm direct placement, usually is a it, they they kill us. I, I need to actually be referred down to them from somebody above them. So I'm I'm open to hearing from your your thoughts yes. and your comments. Because HR is where all sales dreams go to die. <laughs> A couple of things. Uh, you you're not going to be able to compete with Corn Ferry. Yeah. What you have to do is position yourself so that people want to choose you for a particular reason. And and in in some cases it's because you have the candidate. In some cases it's because you have some insight that they might not know. But if you, for example, if you want to play CEOs, then the board of directors is where you need to have a relationship. And if you want to play CMOs, then the CEOs where you need to have the relationship. So, so if you're, if you're CEO or say even president board of directors, if you're C-level or senior level people below that, then the CEO, or for example, if, you know, if it's a CMO, but you're, you know, you're, you're going to focus on a senior vice president of go-to-market strategies or, you know, a head of marketing or what have you, then you may go to the CMO or the CRO and have those relationships. But in those cases, let's just say that you, you know, you're building a relationship with them and your world because of recruiting, it's a little bit different. Like you, you certainly you could cold call them. And if you cold call them, it, you're, you're basically going to have to call them up and have a candidate in your back pocket 
-hmm. and and I don't know if you've made these calls before, but I'm sure you probably have. I might call you up and say, Sandra, uh, I, I've you've heard you're looking for a CMO. I've got a fantastic candidate who has got deep experience in your industry as a CMO. And before I send this person over to you, I want to spend a few minutes making sure it's the right fit. And that's how the, right. Okay. That's, that's how you recruit, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so that's, that's good. Um, my alternative is establishing a relationship with someone where I don't necessarily have that, or I don't know they're looking for a CMO. So that's kind of the other side of it. I've actually created um, a strategy, which incorporates me targeting smaller to mid-sized companies, which I'm aware of have been funded. They have plans for growth. Yep. And um, I, I want to target like sales executives or technical sales, because that usually is the money spot for most mm -hmm. companies. And they generally will be quick to respond. At least logically, that's what makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, so having said that, you know, let me say I'm calling you, Jeb, and I have, I really want to help you find great salespeople. How would, what, what kind of things would be music to your ears? So I can just kind of feel that. Well, the, the, the problem is, is that I'd have to be looking for salespeople. Right. So let's if just call, imagine you, know, you are. If I was, if I was, if I was, you know, if I was, a, if I was, a, you're talking about companies that are, that are getting funded, scaling up. So, so think, I just want to think, go back to relationships, relationships with PEs, relationships with VCs, right? Relationships with the people that are funding these companies. If you want to start anywhere, Sandra, start there, like find a PEG that works in your sector and get to know them. Because the very best referral you can get is from someone that is, you know, is a is a leader in the PEG, the, the private equity group, that tells the founder to talk to you, right? That, like, there's nothing that's going to be a better connection than that. So, that would be a start. But if you if you just cold call me and um, like, give me an example of an industry that you specialize in. I'm right now looking at like healthcare, fintech, digital payments. Okay, good. Um, so, so if you called me up and said, I've, you know, I've heard through the grapevine that you are on a search for sales professionals that have the ability to reach in to some of the larger insurance organizations, financial firms, uh, with your, with your, pro, with your technology. And I've got three candidates that I've got relationships with that come from name the firm. Like they come from this FinTech firm, like they came out of this place and it could be banking. It could be some of the, the, the new technology. There's a lot of people in banking going into FinTech and they're perfect for you. And I want to talk about how I can get them in front of you. That's simple. Like it, it, it has to be direct value and it has to be something important. So if you said, uh, if you called me up and said, uh, look, you know, I've got, I, I don't know, I, you can even say, I don't even know if you're looking for a salesperson, but I've got a candidate in my back pocket that worked for one of your competitors, named the competitor, and they were their top salesperson, and they want to make a move because they heard through the grapevine, or they heard, you know, they've, they've heard really great things about sales gravy, or they've met some people on your team. And I want to get them in front of you. If you did that, I'd talk to you. Because like, because A, you're, you found someone in my space. It's someone who's a great salesperson for them. It's someone who admires my firm. So there's, there's a motivation for them to come to me. And you didn't waste a lot of my time with BS about who you are and all these other things. That's good. So does that make sense? But, it does. But, but I would look at, um, especially if you're looking at companies being funded, it, it's not easy to do, but if you can build those relationships, even with a handful of those firms, that that helps because then what's your selling point? Your selling point is that I'm not Corn Fairy. Your selling point is I'm Sandra, right? Mm -hmm. And I, t I have a, I, I take a, a approach to this that's different than anyone else. I, I'm, I interview better. I'm not just a puppy mill trying to get people into your organization. I'm truly trying to make sure you're going to be successful that you got to sell with that sincerity. And I can do that because that's, that's actually what I do. <laughs> good. good. I mean, does that answer your question? It does. It's, it's a good, it kind of helps validate um, 
you know, what I'm doing. And to your point, I saw one of your, I, I'm looking at chat GTP to generate articles that might be, you know, something that they're losing sleep over. And I thought I would do like a background outreach campaign so that instead of just calling them or pitching a candidate and maybe the timing's not right. Um, I also have a line that says, and if I ever came across somebody that you'd be upset with if I didn't call you, what would that look like? Great question, killer question, absolutely. If you, if you called me up and said, look, I know you're not looking for anybody, but I also know your company's growing. And I've taken a couple of courses on Salesgrave University and it's amazing, you know, and uh, here's the deal. I'm a, I'm a recruiter. I go find great people. Is there, if there was someone that I came across that you would be mad if I didn't get in front of you, who would it be? Then you'd have a conversation with me. I would, I would take an hour probably and spend time with you walking through that because that's not a, that's not a, Hey, I have someone for you right now, which is if you're not really looking in your executive, you're like, why am I going to waste my time with this? That is a, I'm a consultant and I want to be, I want to be the eyes and ears in the marketplace looking for someone that you might even know, not know you need because we all need people. Like the only way we're going to scale is through great people. Hey Deb, how are you? Hey, um, this is my selling in a crisis book that I have that I read a chapter every day just to give me a little oomph in the morning. It's a good yeah, way to start, right? Get in the right that's, mindset. Way, that's, that's exactly how that book was meant to be consumed yeah. once a day. Well, and the nice thing is, is like, quite frankly, from a business right now, I'm not in a crisis. I mean, my crisis that I'm managing is abundance. So that's a great crisis to be in. I'll take that over lack any day. But um, yeah, so I do really like that book. So thank you. I appreciate how you set that up. Um, Excellent. So my question for you is I'm a small business owner. Um, I'm uh, a manufacturing company and we sell a whole bunch of stuff all around the world. And, uh, but I'm the solo salesperson as long as well as being the business owner. So I run all the day to day. We have all the fires, all the fun stuff that happens. And I have an, an amazing team that we're growing and we're getting there. But what is your advice for someone like me that as I grow and scale the company from the minutia of the day to day all the way up until how, how do I keep my eye on the bigger prize where someday I have a large company and I have multiple salespeople and I have uh, multiple people be below me really pushing this so that we're a much bigger company. And how do you recommend scaling in that direction as, as being a solo startup to becoming what sales gravy is today, for example? Yep. Schedule a call with Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I've, Carrie, I've been there, done that. I got the t-shirts and the tattoos. And they hurt, don't they? They do, man. And I and look, I lived in your world for, you know, for years. Like I, there was a point and when my wife, who's our CFO, first started working for Sales Gravy, she was doing everything to try to stay out of the company. And in 2010, I was like drowning. We were we were doing really, really well. Like I was just like you. I had I had the 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 you know the curse of abundance. There was money coming in, there were alligators everywhere. There were all kinds of problems. And I'm the chief salesperson. I was a chief customer service person. I even had multiple personas. So like, like if you came in and like you had a customer service problem, I was Bob. Like, and you know, if I wouldn't, I was, I was selling, I was Jeb. And I had another one that was Elaine. Elaine was like handled. She was my director of customer success. And it was all me. I did. I love it. So, um, so the hardest thing you're going to do is move from where you are to the next place. So, right. so in some ways, Sandra is a good resource for that, or people like Sandra, because if you can get someone who's really good and, and, you have, and you have the ability to spend money to bring people in, they can take a lot of the, 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 the pressure off you because imagine that you're having to be the chief salesperson and the chief owner of the business and all the minutiae that goes with that, and you have to go recruit that's tough. And, and even like in my business now, and I know this is going to be a phone call from Sandra in about 10 minutes, but in my business now, like we're, we're having to go out and use some, some recruiting help uh, because we can't even like, we can, I can't screen the candidates. Like I just don't even have the ability to do that and do it well. And I'm not good at it. So it's gonna, That's one way that you can do it. What I would tell you is this, the hardest thing you're going to do is hire the next salesperson. 
right? That's the, the like, hands down, the hardest thing you're going to do because you're going to fail. Like you are going to crash and burn, fail. And then you're going to have to do it again. And you're not going to want to do it again because you're going to be so mad about all the money that you just wasted hiring the first salesperson who quit you because you couldn't spend time with them because you're too busy selling and they can't move as fast as you and they don't care as much as you. Like, and they leave, you're going to want to go, I don't want to do this anymore, but you got to load it up again. And then you got to do it again. And then you got to do it until you can put a stake in the ground with a human being that can work for you and be loyal to your organization that can help you grow. Now, for me, her name is Brooke. Like I, I failed, like I'm talking about crash, burn, failed. I thought I'm, a, I'm like, I remember really sitting in the kitchen with my wife saying, I'm a total loser because I, I'm the guy who writes books on selling and I can't seem to hire a person to work for me that can actually sell anything. And then I found Brooke. Now Brooke came to us as a customer service person. And then one day she said to me, I'd like to make more money. And I said, cool, let me show you how. Today, she's our most successful salesperson. She, we have a, a thing called Million Dollar Club. We just had our awards meeting today. Uh, and she's been Million Dollar Club three years in a row. She's on track this year to do $2 million in sales, which is a lot of sales in our space. She is our top gun winner. And she's amazing. And she's, and she's the stake in the ground. And, we, and, and if you think about it from a selling standpoint, once we got that one solid thing going, we were able to start building everything around her. And by the way, the same thing on the training side. You know, Keith, who is Jessica's boss, but we started with Keith and we started with Brad and we were able to put a stake in the ground and we, made, we had some failures along the way. But then once we got a solid group, it, it got easier to build. So, and I say this because there's not an easy answer for you other than there's a, there's a methodology. Now, if you've got lots of money to throw at it, then you can make this a whole lot easier than, than, than it is. But as a small business owner, yeah. typically there's not a lot of money to throw at it. So what you have to do is throw your faith that you can do this and you have to work as hard as you can to get those people around you that will stick around and like it and then, and then the hardest part, once you get that going, is extracting yourself from the sales. Because right now you got customers who only want to talk to you, will only call you, will only have anything to do with you. And that takes, that takes two years to, to then you know, try to get yourself out of that so you can rise above it. I'm, I'm, I'm positive, Carrie, that is not the answer that you were looking for, but that is the truth. I'm not there now, but it's good to hear where to go like it's it's good to have like you were talking about even on like a big deal like what is it if i'm going to be here how do i need to break this down so i can get to that point and so that that advice translates into multiple areas not just into like landing the big deal it can translate yes. into your career and your business path as well so exactly i appreciate and, it and one thing carrie we've got a, a we've got our first leadership only mastermind starting next week um, I think that there's like nine or 10 slots open there. That may be a place for you to jump in because that would be an opportunity to talk to other leaders who are hiring and bringing people in and like what, what's happening in, in, in their space. So just maybe something to consider. Okay, thank you. Perfect. All right, Malcolm, go ahead. Oh, thanks, Jeb. Um, right. Uh, so I'm a one man band software engineer, solopreneur, I guess you'd call it. Uh, but I'm not a natural salesman. But just like Carrie, I have to wear all the hats. And one of those is sales. Otherwise, I don't eat. Uh, the family doesn't eat. Now, I've made LinkedIn contact with the CEO of a major manufacturer near where I live. This is potentially could be the biggest deal I've, I've ever done. I've told him what I do. Uh, it's about five days ago. I, I mentioned this on a LinkedIn email uh, message. I haven't. I don't have his number. There's no switchboard number. I can't call him. Uh, I haven't had a response yet. What would you do next? So did did you get any any engagement at all, other than you sent a note? No, no engagement. Um, okay. I have a bit of a history with this company, but I've only talked to people. I, I have a feeling they need what I do, which is, um, I guess it's industrial control. It's, you know, it's yeah. moving, uh, getting, getting stuff, automating a, a process. Um, 
but I I don't know enough yet. Gotcha. I've I've tried contacting one of his, his subordinates and not got anything. I managed to contact him and said, I'm trying to get hold of your subordinate. Why? I've told him and it's sort of up in the air and I don't know quite what's the okay. best next move. Here's what I would do. If you really, really want to get in mm. and you don't have an email or a phone number, all you have is a LinkedIn connection. Yep. So what I would do is a couple of things. One, make shoot a video. Shoot a video for, and you can just you can just shoot the video right on LinkedIn. Just get your phone; it's an app, or you can upload it yeah, via just... video, video art. And let's go back to what I was talking to Bob about ROI, like being able to get your calculator out. You want to, in your language, in this video, in thirty seconds to to sixty seconds, explain the ROI. All a CEO cares about is how do you get me from here to here and how do I make money from that? Because CEOs are responsible for basically managing scarce resources, capital, people, and facilities. So, so you want to do that. The, th the next thing I would do is I would send a handwritten something to their office. And there's a couple of things that you can do. You can do cutesy. You can just do a letter, a handwritten letter. Here's why it's the same thing you said in your video uh, and put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, send it. What I've done in the past when it's been a really high value prospect like that is I've stuck it in an overnight mail envelope, like a FedEx envelope. And the reason that I do that is when you get a FedEx and then inside there is a handwritten note, it's likely to get to the CEO because that says it's important, but, but you may want to start and it's going to cost you some money, but you may want to start just inexpensive and write a handwritten note and handwritten notes work. Like I just, the, it, the inbox is empty. So I would do that. Uh, now, if you want to go like, go get, get crazy. If the manufacturing place is not far from your office or where you live, yeah, find 30 minutes away. Find the CEO's spark parking spot and stand in it until he parks there. And I've done that, okay? And on some occasions, it's worked really well. On other occasions, it hasn't. But a president of a Fortune 200 company recently told a story to a group of salespeople that I was training about a salesperson who showed up at their office, 6 o'clock in the morning, got, you know, went to security, got, got set in the waiting room, and then when he walked through the door, the, the salesperson said, hey, and got a meeting and then sold something. So you can do that as well. But it's one of those things where it takes a little time. What, one of the things I've done in the past, uh, Malcolm, is with people I really want to get in touch with. I don't think you have this in the UK, but at least in, uh, in, uh, in the US, if you go to walmart.com, they sell these parrots. It's a talking parrot. And you push the button and you say something to the parrot and then the parrot will say it back to you. So I've said something to the parrot, put the parrot in a box, put a sticky note with tape on it that says push me and then put a handwritten note in the box, send it over and that'll get a phone call. But, but, but that's a gimmick, right? And there are gimmicks that's that you sure. can do. And you just, I mean, just think like, just be, think creatively, but this may be a thing. If this is important to you, say i'm going to dedicate the next year without okay. being without being a stalker right so don't no, send no. a linkedin message every single day no 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 but i'm going to dedicate the next year to to getting this person to engage because that's the biggest thing right now and yeah. and then it may take a couple of years to get to get in but i will tell you this last spring i sold a deal that took me three years and what I did, I had a phone number, like you don't have a phone number, but it was a top level executive at a really big company who I met mm -hmm. at a conference. Mm -hmm. We talked, nothing there, got a meeting, never got anywhere. I, we talked a couple of times, never got anywhere. And what I did was I sent a test, text message twice a month, or excuse me, twice a quarter for three years. My text message was always something of value. So it would have been like, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that was about something in their industry. I would grab the link to the article, put it in text message, and I would say, you know, hey, Andy, I, I thought you might like to take a look at this. This is a really interesting article. I get a thumbs up, I get a little heart sign. Sometimes I would get a, hey, thanks, or hey, I saw this really interesting. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing to watch. And then one day last spring, 
I sent one in and I get a, a note back. It says, hey, Jeff, thanks for the article. This is really interesting. Hey, by the way, I'm going to be in Atlanta on Tuesday. How about lunch? Now, I wasn't planning on being in Atlanta on Tuesday for lunch. I wasn't planning on being anywhere near Atlanta on Tuesday for lunch. But I said yes, and I found a way to get to Atlanta on Tuesday for lunch. We sat down and we talked about the article. We talked about all kinds of like, we didn't even talk about anything to do with me selling him anything. And at the end of the conversation, he says, I got a problem I need some help with. Boom, we're in three years and we close the deal. So that's, that's what you have to do with a large account like that over time to get in. Uh, and probably, again, not the answer you were looking for. Because no, no, it's easy I, button, I, I but, think it is. It's, yeah. It is. It's, uh, um, they're good ideas and it is something I need to plug away at because it is easy to, to just think, oh, I'll never get a response, I'll stop. And I think to just, the, one of the thing about the masterminds is it encourages you to go, you do, and your book, you know, you do need to just keep on going. You can't just give up because what, until you get a no or, you know, a firm no, there's always the possibility that things will change. And it may not be now they need me. It might be in six months so or a year yeah. or two years. But I know that if I get that, it would be a great uh, win for me and so it's worth the effort so thanks for the encouragement and I'll, I'll look at some of these ideas not sure about the talking parrot but but uh, I'll look for something similar <laughs> so here's here's something to think about that we were talking about big accounts but like for me what I've always done is is had a list of 10 to 25 what I call dream accounts these are the largest opportunities that I've identified as opportunities that I absolutely want like I yeah. you know I bleed these opportunities and everybody in the organization knows that and then I start targeting very similar to that. Like I, I do all kinds of things to get in front of them. Like I'm sending something every single month. And I adjust that usually once a year because you're not gonna close all of them on there. And if you get lucky, you're gonna get one or two during the course of a year. But, but at least you have a plan because you can't, like you can't work at that level of intensity with every single opportunity. So it has to be something like this company that I sold last spring, that was a stake in the ground for me. I'm gonna win this deal. Like I know that they need me, they're highly qualified. This matters, I'm going after it. So what I would suggest Malcolm is like, if, if this is one of those things and you can say, okay, until, until they engage, I'm not giving up because it means that much to me, but limit it to a list of big dream accounts that you can actually work and not get overwhelmed with trying to be that for everybody. Yeah. Makes sense. Thank All you right, very Kevin. much. Go ahead, Kevin. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Long time. Um, so I have a question. I'll just echo that. Um, you know, we love LinkedIn as much as everyone else. I have Sales Navigator, and I know Jessica has said sometimes with InMail, it doesn't work. Is there any thing that you think would, um, you know, I use all these credits, I get nothing, it's kind of crickets. What kind of philosophy or what would you recommend as using our email accounts or just not using sales navigator? I, you know, I, I think navigator's got its, it's got its blessings and it's got its curses, but the, you know, one of the blessings is if it's connected into your LMS, excuse me, your CRM, then yeah. you can get data out of there. It lets you do some research at a level that you can't do with the free program in terms of sending mail to people on LinkedIn this goes back to we we're talking about big accounts and executives mm -hmm. there's not an executive that i've talked to and i talk to executives almost every day because that's what i do most of the most of my accounts i work with their you know their c-level uh people like nobody's looking at email nobody's looking at linkedin they're just done with it because salespeople have figured out a way to just kill the golden goose right we since we send we don't ever call talk to people anymore we just send email over and over and over again and, and now executives are like, screw this. I must not answer in any of them. And I'm pretty much that way. Like I've, there's a handful that I'll look at. Usually someone who's doing business with me, if you're doing business with me, I'm at least going to give you the respect to give you a, a, a showing. Like if you spend money with me, I'll do something for you, mm. but it's rare. And I think in mail, like for me, it's the most, like anything that's in my inbox and LinkedIn, I despise. And let me tell you why. And I bet there's a million dollars sitting in my inbox right now, people who want to do business with me. I can't manage it. Yeah. It's, it's not like if in, if in mail connected to my regular email, 
I could manage it because then if I got something in like you and I said, oh, I want to pass you along to Stephen, I could forge you to Stephen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Malcolm comes in and says, I'm looking for your subordinate. The CEO goes, okay, well, I now have to copy paste this off of here. I've got to get Malcolm's information. I've got to send it to my subordinate because he doesn't really know who you are. He's not going to give you a subordinate's phone number. We'll not know who you are. So it just becomes a mess. So I, I think that you're getting, you're getting, you know, you're getting worse and worse returns. And like you said, you're getting nothing from all these mails you're sitting on LinkedIn because there's so much stuff and it's really hard to deal with it. The second reason is bots. And uh, if LinkedIn, if you're listening to me, please, I beg you, right? Enforce your rules that you should not be able to automate emails into LinkedIn inboxes. You should not be able to automate direct mail. It's, it's bots. And so there's these people who then go get a bot, they do this, and then they, and then they basically spam LinkedIn. So then when you, the legitimate person who is sending a one-to-one mail, in mail or, you know, note, um, they, um, the, they aren't listening. Um, they, you know, they don't see that because they're so burned out on all the other stuff that's coming at them. So, so just think, think of it that way. So there's it. a couple, there's a couple of things, Kevin, that I would recommend if you're going to send uh, a mail on, on, on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask you this question first. Are you, are you sending voice messages? Uh, Vidyard. Okay. Send voice messages. Okay. So go to, go to LinkedIn. Click the little microphone and send a voice message. Okay. Okay. So do that. The second thing I want you to do is, is I love Vidyard. Vidyard is one of my favorite apps and, um, and Bob mentioned that. So this is, this is not a hit against Vidyard, but on LinkedIn's app, mm-hmm. send your video native. Okay. So go, go to the, go open the tray up. There's a little video icon, click that and send the video there. And the reason that you want to do that, and I would just A-B test Vidyard against that, is that Vidyard is a link that people have to open. The mm-hmm. native video in LinkedIn, it plays. Like you, it, it's, in the, it's in the mail itself. Uh-huh. So you've got a much better shot of that opening because if I'm on my phone and I'm in a slow place and I open up the Vidyard app on the LinkedIn app, now we've got two apps talking together. And if it's, if it's slower than like instantly, I just move on to the next thing. And if it's in the vid, if it's in the, the, the LinkedIn app, it'll be instant. So I would do those two things. Second thing, Kevin, is I check your message. So what, what I mean by that is if you're sending lots of stuff mm-hmm. and you're getting no engagement, then it may be that people see your stuff and they go, just not interested. Like this, this isn't connecting with me. So, and typically what you want to think about, whether it's a video message or a voice message or a in message, is that you've got a really short period of time to grab their attention. So what I want to start with is relating to them. So in other words, I don't want to start with, hey, I want to talk to you because I want to start with, uh, you know, I can't even imagine what it's like to be the CEO of a software company in today's world where it's hard to find people who can code at a high level. Right. I can't imagine what it's like to be in your shoes. Instantly, they grab you like grabs me because I go, oh, this person is actually thinking about me. Mm -hmm. Then, right, then after you've related to them, then say, here's what I do in in this situation. I help companies do this. And I don't know whether or not I'm even a fit for you. But wouldn't it at least make sense for us to get together so I can ask a few questions and I can learn about you to see if it makes sense for us to keep talking. But what you want to try to do is front load with relating, right? And yeah. then shift into to like a, a, a what we call a value bridge, right? A value bridge would be the bridge from the problem or their issue or what's, you know, what's happening in their world to how you, how you can help them. I would do those things. And then finally, what I would do is if you're, if you're doing a bunch of LinkedIn and you're not layering on other parts of that sequence, mm-hmm. I would start laying on other parts of that sequence. So for example, you go um, LinkedIn phone, LinkedIn voice, LinkedIn video, LinkedIn message, right? Written message, 
phone. Uh, you go to uh, Vidyard Video via email. Uh, you send um, a parrot in the mail. I mean, you send a handwritten note, like send something. Uh, and, uh, and then rinse and repeat that process. And, and by the way, Kevin, if, you know, if the people that you're reaching out to are local, right, just go walk in their front door. I, 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 this is kind of crazy to say, but, and I'm not a big fan of prospecting by foot, but in-person prospecting is back. Like it is back in a big damn way because people are not doing it and people are happy to see you. And like, nobody's going, you know, when you walk in their front door going, Hey, do you have a mask on? Like, so like okay. there's a, there's an opportunity there in some markets to, to really connect with people. So I would, I would start running those sequences, but I would, I, that's what I would probably look at and not, not being able to see exactly what you're doing, but those are the places that I would start tweaking. But, for everybody, and if LinkedIn's listening and Bob says they're not paying any attention, but uh, I would say, um, yeah, it's the it's the it's the bots and it's the spam and it's the junk, and it's all mm -hmm. hitting direct mail. And I love direct. I mean, direct messaging. I love direct messaging. It is so awesome. It is the Swiss Army knife of selling, but it's it's just gotten to the point now where. I, I just truly do not open my LinkedIn inbox. Like there's, there's a there's hundred messages and mm -hmm. I feel bad because there's people writing me notes telling me how much they like my books and the, the impact it's had on them. But I'm wading through one piece of spam after another piece of spam after another piece of spam that is so irrelevant to my situation that I just don't see any, any of it. And, and that's, that's terrible. You mean you don't want to buy a franchise? Carrie's, Carrie says one of those messages for me. See, I feel shame, Carrie. Now I'm going to have to go in there and get into that crap, probably see something Kevin sent me. And, you know, <laughs> and pretty soon, like, you know, I've got Sandra on the phone with me. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm dead in the water. I sent you a free bottle of tequila and you didn't answer. So, sorry. <laughs> not, if you sent tequila, it never ended up in my, in, in my bar. So, that's a problem. So I guess somebody, I gotta resend it. Yeah, there's somebody in my office that is drinking the tequila because I've never saw that. Hey, Jeb, just for just for uh, giggles, uh, just your take on Chat GPT oh, as it relates to our profession. I use it, and mm. um, I I use it, and I I you know I like it, and it works for me for some different things. So let me give you an example. Uh, this morning, I posted a new course from Jim Carr called Five, um, five Words That um, Give You More Influence and in Sales Conversations, something along those lines. And I went to ChatGPT and I said, write a course description for a micro course called Boom. Click go. It spit out a description. About half of it was crap. About half of it was just useless, but the core of it was good. So I took that, grabbed it out of there. I knew kind of what I wanted to write and I rewrote around that. And it saved me uh, probably 45 minutes if, from writing it from scratch because I would, have to, I would have had to build the foundation for building the course description. So it does a really good job with that as long as I help it, like as long as it's part of my brain. Um, so I did that. And I think it's I think it's great for if you're working in a proposal and you're like looking for the words to say, if you type it in and say, how would I say this? Boom, it'll give you some information. And as long as you're plugging it into your into your brain and using it that way, I think it's a super powerful tool. Uh, we've been using it for research. So um, so I mentioned Keith earlier, but he was looking for software integrators in a particular town in New Jersey and started putting these different prompts in the chat GPT until it nailed down a list of those of those firms. And then he was able to drop this, uh, that into Zoom info and then grab the information around that. And he said it probably saved him two hours of searching on the Internet. So I think there are really nice, um, really nice ways that uh, that ChatGPT can help you out. So, but let me let me give you the flip side of that. One of the things that ChatGPT is going to do that's going to really hurt salespeople is it's going to take a lot of salespeople. We're just talking about spamming with Kevin, like in in LinkedIn, who go write a letter to Jim Hughes about Boom, and they and they go Boom, 
And then they write, write a letter to Kevin about boom. And if you do that in ChatGPT, what you're going to see is that the third level down is writing the exact same message it was up. It starts getting those patterns. And then the salesperson doesn't use their brain. They just copy paste. And then they start putting that into emails and they start putting that in emails. And suddenly all you got to do is wake up and go, a robot wrote this and nobody likes talking to robots. And I know this when I get an email in and it says, Dear Jeb Blunt from the Sales Acceleration, Sales Gravy, the Sales Acceleration Company. I'm like, crap, a robot wrote that. Because nobody would like take the tagline for my company and then put it into the company name. But that's what we do on LinkedIn. So once you see that pattern, it gets really easy to self-select and go, I'm out. And so what salespeople are going to do is they're going to use ChatGPT to write stuff and they're not going to check it because they're lazy and they're going to further destroy the ability to use written word. So, and I'm going to leave you with this as my final. I've actually got two things for you before I leave. I was talking to Chris Bill. He's one of my favorite people. He's uh, with um, a connect and sell, but we were talking about the, the value of humans, right? The value of salespeople in the world of AI. When, ChatGPT really hit the, the marketplace back in January, February of this year. That was the beginning of a new era in sales. Because essentially at that moment, no written word can ever be trusted again. Mm-hmm. Nothing that is written, you, you know, was that written by a robot? Was it not written by a robot? Human beings hate dealing with robots. We hate dealing with robots because we don't want to be manipulated. And if you think that someone wrote you something and it wasn't a real person who really cared, you feel manipulated. So suddenly, human connection, what we're doing here, our ability to talk with each other, our ability to have conversations, whether it's on video or whether it's in person, suddenly that became incredibly value or valuable. And so all of us, what we're doing and how we interact with people, that now is has made us more valuable to our organizations than ever before. And robots can't do that because robots can't do empathy. And people don't like talking with robots, which is why walking in someone's door and saying hello suddenly came back. Well, everybody, thank you all so much for uh, for coming. And for all the people who are listening to the podcast version of this conversation with this mastermind group, like if you want to learn more about masterminds and how masterminds work, just go to learn.salesgravy.com. That's learn.salesgravy.com. I promise you, if you join a mastermind group, you will not be sorry. They're amazing. And, uh, and we'd love to see you in the next one that we have coming up. And we run them every single month. Bye, everybody. 